let me introduce our panelists. Uh, so sitting at my far right is Congressman Michael Burgess, who is the Vice Chairman of the House Oversight and Investigations, uh, the, I'm sorry, of the Health and Oversight and Investigations Subcommittees. He's represented um, his district since 2002, District 26, and he is, has an MD as well from the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. Welcome, Congressman. Um, sitting next to him is State Senator Charles Schwartner, who's chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Senator Schwartner was first elected to represent District 5 in the Senate in 2012. And in addition to chairing the Health and Human Services Committee, he's a member of the Criminal Justice and the Agriculture, Rural Affairs, and Homeland Security Committees. Sitting next to him is Dr. Kyle Janik, who is the Texas Health and Human Services Executive Commissioner, who was appointed in 2012 to lead the agency by Governor Rick Perry. He oversees five state health and human services agencies, and previously he served in the Texas House for eight years and in the Texas Senate for five years. Sitting next to him is State Representative Sarah Davis from West University Place, and she was first elected in 2010 to represent District 134 in the Texas House, and she serves on the Public Health, Calendars, and Appropriations Committee, and a Secretary of the Women's Health Caucus. Welcome. And finally, uh, State Representative Garnet Coleman, who's chair of the House County Affairs Committee. He was first elected in 1992 to represent House District 147 in Houston. And he currently serves as chairman of his committee and a member of the Public Health Committee and Select Committee on Federal Economic Stabilization Funding. So welcome, everybody, um, and thank you for joining us. So a lot has changed since we, uh, since Tribune Fest had a panel last year on Obamacare. Um, first thing is that People actually were able to enroll in the exchanges after a very bumpy um, ride. And a number of states also actually put in place their Medicaid expansions. And um, it's actually working. And at this point, 27 states um, have signed on to it. And a, a few others are considering it. So I wanted to ask each of you, just from your perspective, um, now that we're into the actual implementation stage uh, and people are seeing results, how, how is that actually playing out? So why don't I start with you, Congressman? Well, I think one of the, uh, of course, I wasn't with you this time last year because I was in Washington and we were battling over some budgetary issues, so I had <laughs> planned to be with you. Um, it, you continue to sort of suffer from a, from a lack of information from the agency and from the administration on how things are. So as a consequence, as a member of Congress, it becomes very, very difficult to plan and make decisions based upon what knowledge is available. All of the controversy over how many people signed up and then the numbers revised and how many people lost policies and had to sign up that are included in that, in that number, all of that is a very much a moving target, as we saw over just the last few days. From the, from the federal perspective on the Medicaid expansion, I think the states that have been somewhat circumspect are correct. Uh, one of the things that we were fighting about this time last year was the dollar amount in the federal budget. You may recall the summer of 2011, there was also a large fight about that, which led to what was called the sequester. Um, here's the problem. The Medicaid expansion that's been promised to the states, the federal share, is very, very generous, unlike anything anyone has seen before. The problem is there is no actual money there to give to the states. So it is all money that is borrowed from someone else, uh, either a sovereign nation or for, from future generations, and that's what makes it very, very difficult. I, for those states that have said, let's wait and see, I think that was a, a reasonable approach. Now, do remember, Medicaid expansion is not a consequence of any legislative language because that was set aside in the Supreme Court. So this is a court opinion that said that states may not be held hostage to their existing, their existing Medicaid dollars may not be held hostage to expanded Medicaid dollars. As a consequence, there is no deadline. You remember with the exchanges, the deadline was uh, November 8th of 2012, and then that could put off a little bit and put off a little bit more, but eventually uh, the HHS had to say, you know, time's up. You've got you've to tell us whether you're in the exchanges or not. Medicaid is not the same thing because, again, it's a court opinion, and the court just said that the federal government could not hold the states hostage with their existing Medicaid dollars. As a consequence, 
at some point in the future? Could those states who've decided not, at this point, not to expand Medicaid? Sure, it's within their purview. Other legislative sessions may feel differently. Experience will be gained by those states who have expanded Medicaid, either good or bad, and that will be part of the decision tree also. But to me, the biggest issue will be, you know, right now, everyone's kind of in a ceasefire mode in Washington because there's an election coming up. Sometime early next year, these budgetary battles will be reengaged, and they will be quite serious. And the ability of the federal government to fund all of its promises is one of those things that, uh, that may be front and center in the national, in the national discussion. So um, no argument with Texas having done what it's done. And, and I would also just make this point as well. There is a new head at the Department of Health and Human Services. I don't know that person at this point. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. The last Secretary of Health and Human Services was very, very difficult to work with. I'm optimistic that the new secretary will not, will not be as difficult. Thanks, Representative Burgess. Senator Schroeder. Thank you, Charles. Nice to be here. Um, in general, I think Obamacare is overpromised and underdelivered, just like any sort of top-down, bureaucratically devised um, program. It's a complete upheaval of our healthcare system. Um, we certainly had issues in healthcare access and quality and affordability, uh, but we see what happens when you have a group of fairly small numbered individuals, I'm sure very smart, Harvard educated, in the back room coming up with a bill being passed by, by without a single vote of Republicans in 2009. I think it's important that this audience understands and reminds or is reminded of the promises made at the time of the passage. We heard President Obama say that, that we we're trying to expand access to quality, affordable care, and that their premiums would go down $2,500, that we would bend the cost curve down nationally on a national debt and deficit, that you could keep your doctor, that you could keep your plan, that we're going to increase access to 36 million more individuals. It was a promise that, if you really thought through it, could not come to fruition. Um, and so we're seeing the, the ramifications of that. This, this bill had lots of, uh, lots of problems with it, this law now. Um, and so there have been numerous exemptions, numerous delays um, that have made it very much different than what was originally passed. Um, and so we continue to struggle with that as a nation and as a country and as individual states. Um, we'll continue, I guess, uh, to discuss the Medicaid expansion portion of Obamacare. But expanding Medicaid in its current form is a non-starter for Texas. Medicaid expansion, um, we should have an honest discussion about. But expanding it in its current form is expanding a system which allows an individual to take a no-limit health care credit card and go to the most expensive places that there are, the emergency rooms, and get whatever service that is, um, that is being sold that day by the provider. Um, and that just has a a, a positive feedback loop between the provider providing that service and getting reimbursed by a third-party payer and the individual wanting that service because we as Americans are trained to believe that more is better. Um, and so we needed reform, and we still need reform, but we need to do it in a smart way that allows for increased access to those that desperately need it, that's affordable for our families, and sustainable and accountable to our taxpayers. Okay, Dr. Chan. Thank you, Charles. It is nice to be back. Uh, obviously, at the agency, our job is to implement some of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act with a special emphasis, almost an exclusive emphasis, on our Medicaid and CHIP roles. And so uh, that initial rollout was very, very rocky. We saw a large number of the applications, those folks who would go to the federal marketplace looking for insurance that would then come to us, very low numbers at first because of the shaky rollout of healthcare.gov, but then it got better and the numbers started to pick up considerably. Um, to date, we've had about 230,000 applications, people who went to healthcare.gov looking for insurance and were directed to us electronically by the marketplace. And of those 230,000, very, very, a very small number. It's actually, it'll hover anywhere from 13 to about 16% of them have actually been eligible for Medicaid. So they go to healthcare.gov looking for insurance. Federal uh, marketplace directs them back to Texas by saying, we think you're eligible for Medicaid in Texas, directs them to us, but actually a very small number have been. 
That said, we're of 230,000, if you're still seeing 13 to 15, 16% that are coming in that are eligible for Medicaid, that has an impact on the rolls. Past that, we continue to see increases on the Medicaid rolls from folks that are coming, not necessarily just from healthcare.gov, but their, their eligibility has changed. And I want to make clear, the eligibility criteria in Texas did not change in terms of who's eligible based on percent of FPL and so forth. But the Affordable Care Act did several things that have a fairly dramatic impact. The first is that it said we, the federal government, basically relying on the IRS tax code. Relying on the tax code, we will determine first what household composition is, and secondly, what income is, and importantly, what income disallowables there are. Mm -hmm. So when you calculate income, we, can, we in Texas can set a policy at 133% of federal poverty level, for example, and they're going to determine what, um, what criteria go in to, the, to figure out whether somebody is at 133 or below. Second issue is that they, um, the Affordable Care Act said going forward, Medicaid will rely on a 12-month certification, and that means that when people come in and at the time of application, we verify their, their household composition, we verify uh, income and so forth, and if they're eligible for Medicaid, they will remain eligible, they will remain certified for Medicaid for 12 months, and the state cannot go back and say, okay, we want you at six months, we want you to reapply, and let's go check everything again. And we do get the flexibility to look at databases. We can look at uh, uh, workforce commission information to see if somebody has had a sudden increase in income, and if we have good reasons to suspect that their financial circumstances have changed, we can then go back to them. But that increase in, in the length of time that once somebody gets certified, they stay in, it's gonna have a pretty big impact on us, even if they leave the state even if they get an increase in income that we don't know about, it, it can, those folks will remain on the rolls. And because we pay on a per member per month basis with our managed care partners, we will continue to pay those premiums even if those folks are no longer eligible. They don't live in Texas, they got a big income increase and so forth. Um, we've seen an increase in the number of adults whose kids receive TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. It's the income threshold in Texas is very low. You have to be at or below 12% of federal poverty level. That's not much money, folks. That's about $200 a month. And so a little bit of an income change can have a dramatic effect on those numbers. And interestingly, through the uh, IRS tax regulations, m must, much if not almost all the income that would come to, say, a single mom receiving child support is completely disregarded. We disregarded some of that income in the past. It's completely disregarded. So if somebody's getting, making $195 a month in their income and they're getting $150 a month in child support, you can see where that would immediately drop them below the 12% 12, uh, 12 of federal poverty level. So we've seen the adults who have kids on welfare uh, from a year ago, basically 120,000 has now jumped to about 145,000, I think. Significant increases in those and other populations as well. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, from my perspective, looking at um, the Medicaid expansion and the marketplaces exchange, the, the common theme that I feel is that just it's complete uncertainty. I mean, and you said earlier there's 27 states that have expanded Medicaid and, quote, everything is working. But no, I'm saying it's turned on, so the it, lights it, are turned on. Okay, well, then the lights are turned on, but we, don't, we can't really say for sure that all these programs are working exactly as they, they, those states thought they were. I have read articles, actually, to the contrary, that some of the things that they had negotiated, negotiated for with the feds, in fact, um, they, were not, um, they were not sticking to those promises. So I don't think that we can say that expansion of Medicaid is tried and true and tested and it should be um, automatically adopted. I just think there's still so much uncertainty with that. And then you have the exchanges. And I'm even more uncertain about these exchanges because we have two different federal courts that have come to exact opposite conclusions. We have one federal circuit court that says uh, you're not eligible for subsidies if you purchase insurance through the federal exchange. And then we have a second circuit court who said the exact opposite, that says you are el eligible to receive subsidies if you purchase through a federal exchange. So as we sit here today, since state, the state of Texas does not have a state exchange, and the few, I, I think relatively few number of people 
compared to our population of uninsured that have actually signed up through an exchange. And theoretically, because of the opportunity to re receive subsidies, may not even be able to keep that because they may lose the subsidies. So we still have to wait for the, theoretically, for the United States Supreme Court to rule on this issue. And I think until we even get that ruling, having a discussion about whether or not these, the exchanges, the federal exchange is good or bad, or whether or not Texas should have set up a state exchange, it's, it's, it's just academic because it's really going to change once we get a ruling. So I see both cases as just a lot of uncertainty, which is why I uh, am comfortable with Texas saying, and the legislature saying, we're not going to jump into these programs. Uh, we have a lot at stake. We have a huge population. We have a lot of people that we need to serve that will cost a great deal of money. And the legislature has taken a very measured approach before jumping into uh, brand new federal programs, which is something that I, I think is the right step to take. Just one quick point. You're absolutely right that the federal circuits have come to different conclusions on this. I think the administration's interpretation right now is they're keeping going at the status quo. So for those who are enrolling this coming year and have enrolled, they will continue to receive the subsidies until ordered to stop them. Correct. That stop. is correct. But yeah. that yeah. day could come. That day could come. Well, thank you, and thanks for distributing uh, for in inviting me to come back again. You know, it's very clear that there are sides, and th that's not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not likely to change until uh, after uh, January of 2017, because the president will be president, and whatever bill comes, he'll veto it. But I think that with that in mind, it's a good time for people to work together to find real solutions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what government is supposed to do. Because there's a divide, it's a great, I think it's a great opportunity to sit down and see where we agree. And when it comes to the uh, Texas solution or Medicaid expansion, the state has to act. It's not the federal government that comes to the state and says act. It's the state that goes to the federal government and says act. And there's some interesting experiments going on. Uh, one in Pennsylvania, which uh, uses premium sharing so that the Medicaid eligible in a commercial plan actually pays for part of the cost of their insurance, which I think is a good idea because what I've heard is that people want folks to learn how to actually buy their insurance and so and, and contribute to that. And that's something that I came up with last session uh, because I thought it work, would work. And then you have Indiana out there who is actually asking for even more conservative pieces in their waiver under the Medicaid expansion. So the work of people who have said it doesn't work is really working because it means those governors who have to who respond to conservative constituencies have asked CMS to do things that are responsible to those conservative constituencies. And, and you know that 733 or 34,000 people signed up on the exchanges, which is actually pretty good. Uh, we will get numbers soon out of the national numbers of how many Texans didn't pay their premium. All of this is a work in progress, uh, and the, the real challenge is going to be if we can't do anything to fix what we learn, then that's a tragedy uh, because no one can throw a bill on the floor up in the Congress and think that there isn't going to be, you know, Armageddon. And so the, the House throws its bill on and passes it, and the Senate's not going to. And then next session, throw a bill on the floor, pass it if the, if the Republicans take over the Senate, and the president's going to veto it. So in the final analysis, there's the partisanship there's, creates no room for fixing the problems that are laid out. Uh, you know, the congressman is right. They have, uh, the president has waived different provisions of the bill. And the last provisions he waived were exactly what the House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives, said was wrong with some pieces of it, so he waived those pieces. But if he could put it on the floor, you could change the bill. But, but that's, that's just not going to happen. Um, I, I work closely with my colleagues on a bunch of things, and we all understand that people need health care. Uh, the state of Texas done, did 
$3 billion in bonds to find a cure for cancer. $3 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, the, the, the reality of it is that we have to continue to try to find a way. That's what our constituents and Texans expect of us, to not just say no, but to find a way to make it work for the people who have a need. Last thing. The biggest beneficiaries, and I think this is important to repeat, the biggest beneficiaries of the medic would be under the Medicaid expansion and under, uh, it's the idea of pre-existing conditions. Uh, the, the biggest group of people helped by uh, the Medicaid expansion and overall uh, under the Affordable Care Act are people with cancer. Those are the people who are helped. And, you know, we've made a commitment to cancer, but we haven't made a commitment to the people who have cancer. So, and one last one. The estimates are 80 to 90 percent of the individuals with mental illness that you see on the street would have insurance and coverage if we did the Texas Solution or Medicaid. So let's dig into some news that came out last week from the uh, uh, Census Bureau, which was about Texas's uninsured population. So uh, of Texas's about 26 million people, um, the U.S. Census Bureau estimated about 5.7 million, or about 22% of the population, lack health insurance in 2013. If you look at just those between the ages of 18 and 64, um, that's 30% of the population. And if you look at those that are below 138% of the federal poverty level, it's about 36% of the population. So let's assume for a moment that Texas has made its decision, as it sounds like the leadership has, that it is not going to expand Medicaid in this format and that it's not going to create its own exchange. What is Texas going to do about this population? I'll, I'll take that. I, I think you need to look at those numbers a little bit differently. Of the 5.7 million or 22%, if we expanded Medicaid, that's only about 100% one million people between 15 and 100 percent of the federal poverty level, that would only lower the uninsured percentage from 22 to 18 percent. So Medicaid expansion is not a solution for the uninsured in an expansive um, amount. Um, in addition, when you expand Medicaid, you're putting more individuals already on a strained safety net um, that is covering those with that are aged, blind, disabled, with intellectual and developmental disabilities, pregnant women, and children. And we're adding another group, another population, which are the able-bodied and otherwise productive adults onto that safety net. And that has ramifications for those other individuals accessing care when you have more individuals being paid for um, by the state of Texas. So, but I think the question is not, is just say that Texas is not doing the Medicaid expansion, but what can Texas do well, about this number? We're, we're already doing things. If you look at through the 1115 waiver, the $28 billion waiver, we have uh, through the disparate projects, significant programs that are looking at increasing access to care and diminishing ER utilization rates. In addition, we have a very robust system of federally qualified health clinics, over 70 of them in our in our state with over 300 different clinic sites, which provide access to care without, for those that might not have. Why don't you explain access. to the audience what an 1115 waiver is? 1115 waiver is a CMS waiver to um, allow for the states that partake in it to have a, a difference in their approach to a certain, certain issue. Um, and so they are able to uh, utilize, in this case, this the transformative waiver that allowed us to roll in certain populations same time allow us to try innovative new designs to improve health care delivery in the state of Texas. Uh, and finally, I'd like to also add that we have a very significant and robust system of, of um, health-related institutions, medical schools and teaching hospitals and um, uh, county-based hospital systems, CareLink and other ones, uh, Project Access up in Collin County, which allow for access to those with, with, without insurance to care. And, and finally, of course, by intolerant regulations, those that need emergency care can present to the emergency room and receive care in an emergency situation. But that's it's not, not ideal, but, yeah. but if you expand Medicaid, it's been shown in Oregon, for instance, that you're going to actually increase ER utilization of those rather than – there's no provisions in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, to improve where they receive that care in the most appropriate location. You're going to continue to overburden our emergency rooms past the straining point 
that they are able to tolerate in our state. Right. I'm just saying accepting as a base level that the state will not expand Medicaid. The, the 1115 waiver has been in place since 2011. The percentage of uninsured has not budged in this state barely oh. at all since then. So yeah, the percentage of uninsured in the state of Texas has been sort of at a, at a very consistent level, if not going up, sort of over, historically. So efforts in the state to reduce that number have not worked. So um, what is sort of, what is moving the needle on that? I so think you're Dr. going to Janet. see improvement. And go ahead, Dr. Janet. Yeah. Um, I want to make the distinction, as I have done at the Trib Fest for the last couple of years, we should not confuse who has an insurance card in their pocket with who Access. is getting care. So one of the things, it's, it's to say that the folks at, um, uh, who depend in Bear County, for example, on the county hospital district to provide some level of care to them. Some with co-pays, if they have no, absolute no ability to pay, then there's no money to collect and so forth. They're getting care and they don't have an insurance card. Taken to its logical extreme, and I hope you won't take this in the wrong way, but if we, if, if we just said that from now and ever always, uh, if people wanted, there would, be a, um, there would be a national system to pay for everybody's health care period, the single payer idea. Right? It would pay for everybody's health care. Well, you don't need an insurance card. There are clinics open, and you walk in, and free service, free to you, free services provided. Nobody would have an issue. You would have 100% uninsured. And yet, everybody would continue to get care. So it, it's only to make that distinction that we should not confuse those who don't have an insurance card in their pocket with not getting care. As Senator Schwartner pointed out, and with the great help of Representative Coleman, Texas has implemented this change in the 1115 waiver that takes local money through the hospital districts and puts that up for a federal match. Virtually no state money involved, but there's always a caveat to everything, some for the state-owned hospitals and some because the appropriators have been generous enough to put some money in the pot. And we've created two new pots of money. One is an old pot of money, disproportionate share hospital, and the other is the uncompensated care pool of the 1115 waiver. It's a complicated bureaucrat way of, of saying that local money brings down federal match, yes, in the Medicaid program, but it is done in such a way that care goes out to those folks who are not Medicaid eligible, but get care in that system. And so that's enormously important, and what these counties are doing is dramatic. It is amazing in some areas. Harris County Hospital District, Tarrant, Dallas, Bear, these large hospital districts and some small hospital districts are coming up with these new ways to deliver care that is supposed to be transformational, and while at the same time in the other half of that waiver, they're getting compensated for some of the uncompensated care that they've been delivering to people. So I always want to make that distinction. Representative Pullman, is Texas doing enough on the uh, uninsured? No. And, and the reason I've been in this legislature for 23 years, and, and uh, Dr. Janik knows that I've been working on covering the uninsured for a very long time. And there is a difference between having an insurance card in your pocket or not because it's called certainty. Certainty is, in peace of mind is very important to people. And so they'll get the care in the right way if they have a primary care provider to go to so that care can be uh, organized. And I, and I think that's the... the, the, the Primary care home model is extremely important for reducing costs, and you know the studies show that those who have done that model actually have saved an inordinate amount of money in any any uh, income any insurance uh, product that there is, whether it's Medicaid, CHIP, or private insurance. So that's the direction we're going in. And one of the things that's good about the 1115 waiver is it does study those things to see how to best save money overall. But it goes without saying, a lot of people don't leave their jobs if, uh, because they worry about health insurance. I have three chronic illnesses. If it wasn't for the Affordable Care Act, I'd be in hell in a handbasket if I left the legislature. And that's just the reality. Um, so I think that we can continue to work with the counties to make a difference in that regard. But it doesn't change the fact that the best way to get treated is through a model that uses primary care first. The other piece on this is there's this provision that Senator Ron Wyden put into the, the Health Care Act. It's called Section 1023. Now, what's important to understand about that is just about everything that we've talked about that somebody wants to do, you can do with the 1023 waiver. And, um, and that even would include some form of block grant. So I, I think the fact that 
people are saying the Medicaid system is broken, well, that's fine. But the state of Texas actually could go to CMS, ask for one of these waivers, and do it exactly the way they want to. So, Representative Davis, is there um, an effort by the state to sort of come up with a proposal of what it wants to do uh, and present it to the feds? I think that's a conversation that is, is one that we definitely do not want to walk away from the table from. I don't get that sense at all. In fact, I think Texas wants to continue to work with the fed, federal government to try to find some uh, solutions uh, as long as we have the flexibility that Texas feels like it needs over those programs. And I, and before we go too far, I want to, I think we did a really great job, and I want to mention the investments that we made last session in women's health. Yes. Uh, we, we restored all the cuts from 2011 and budgeted an additional $100 million in new money for the expansion of primary care for women. We funded an unprecedented levels for mental health funding, something that had not been seen in the state. So the state, I think, on its own, has made significant investments in populations that we feel um, that we need to have an investment in. So I, I, I don't ever want us to forget all the good things that, we, that we've done and that we continue to do. So you're a breast cancer survivor. I am. Um, do you feel that there's you know, adequate access, so not just insurance, but access to care for women who have breast cancer in the state who may not have insurance? Uh, it would not matter if you have insurance or not. The truth is that we do not, and this will kind of feed on what Representative Coleman was talking about, we have a physician shortage in the state. We don't have the physicians to handle the current amount of breast cancer patients or, or just the current amount of people seeking health care. So, you know, everyone could have, be on Medicaid or everyone could have an insurance card, but if we don't have the physicians and the nurses to care for us, it doesn't matter. And I definitely see that there is, there is without a doubt, a, a, a physician shortage and a nursing shortage. And I'm working on um, uh, legislation with Senator Ellis to address the nursing shortage. And I promised him I would plug that today. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so community clinics, I think uh, one of you noted, serve a very important role within um, the health care system of the state of Texas. And, um, and yet the, the trust fund, the federal trust fund that doles out support for those community health centers since 2011 will expire in September of 2015, and that will result in a 70% cut in aid, about $190 million. Um, they currently get from the federal funds, they would lose $133 million of that. And according to the community clinics, they submit about $676 per patient per year, so that would be about 200,000 people that they couldn't serve. Um, the CEO of one chain of community clinics said it's the most dire set of circumstances that I've ever come across. Um, given that the trust fund was set up as sort of a transition because of the Affordable Care Act. Um, what is the state doing, if anything, to prepare for the loss of funds for those community clinics? A couple of things. First is that um, we, and again, to go back to the 1115 waiver and that UC pool, we've got a program called Disproportionate Share Hospital Funding. It exists and has existed for decades. It's an effort by the federal government and the states to take some money from the feds, match it with state money, and then put that into those hospitals and local money, primarily local money, I should add, put that into those hospitals across the state who do a disproportionate share of the both Medicaid and uninsured care delivered in the state. So that is, uh, what I'm gonna get to to answer your question is a safety net. We've got, we've got different things in different parts of the state serving both populations, both Medicaid and the uninsured population. And they're doing it in such a way that it, it makes you um, uh, have to dispel the old myth of if you don't have insurance, the only place to go is the emergency department. That gives short shrift to what, uh, for example, Harris County Hospital District, which is soon, I think we'll have to rethink that term hospital district, and, and they are now being called health districts because they're not just about the hospital and the emergency department. They are about that clinics, clinics that stay open late hours when the working folks that are just trying to make ends meet can actually get to those clinics. And so between the hospital districts, the health districts, if you will, new medical schools coming up in the state of Texas to help provide that, provide, uh, meet that provider shortage, physicians, and very importantly, nurses, 
terrible nursing shortage in the state of Texas across many specialties in, on the physician side um, with the, the DISH and the UC pools to the 1115 waiver. There are more ways to provide more care to folks with and without insurance than ever before. And some of that I may add, and I'm the first to carp when we're not getting along well with our partners at CMS, but they would have worked marvelously with us on a new initiative that would allow some of the state money going to the medical schools to then get a federal match through the Medicaid program and then go back to those medical schools to help train that next generation of doctors and nurses and, and others. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least thank our federal partners for that participation. We focus, we the feds and, and I focus on those things we disagree on, but there's a lot of work gets done that is done in cooperation. Uh, with our partners at CMS, where it is more of a true partnership rather than us being told, here's how it's got to happen. Representative Burgess, um, <laughs> Representatives Granger and Green have been leading an effort to try to get the Texas delegation on board to a letter to um, ensure that the trust fund to fund community clinics um, extends beyond September of 2015. You haven't signed that letter. Um, do you support sort of adding federal funding for the community clinics past the end of expiration of that? Well, there actually is a formula by which that funding continues written into the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so I don't think it just completely evaporates in, in 2015. But here's the other part of the deal. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was supposed to provide that coverage. Um, where is it? I mean, if, is it, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Children's health insurance plan is supposed to sunset in 2015 because the Affordable Care Act is supposed to be providing for all of those children. There is concern because of some of the matches under SCHIP are better than the matches under the Affordable Care Act. So there are people who are arguing for a continuation of SCHIP. But it was supposed to, the Affordable Care Act, the President's promise was this, was, this, this would all be taken care of. So clearly there are some things where, where work needs to be done. I do want to you know, one point of agreement with Representative Coleman, I, I do agree that we can't wait for January 2017 to do anything. And I think when you look at the disruption that has occurred in the individual market because of the Affordable Care Act, um, the employer mandate was suspended until some point after Election Day 2014. If I were cynical, I'd think of a reason why they did that. But the individual market was significantly disrupted in November, December of last year when healthcare.gov started out. I know that because I'm in the individual market. So if you buy a bronze or silver plan, you're now paying a lot for insurance. Uh, most people who buy in the individual market are not subsidized, and as a consequence, they are facing deductibles the likes of which they've never seen before. And I hear from people all the time who are having, having these problems. Look, I'm just like anybody else. When I looked at the healthcare marketplace, I bought on price. I, I didn't look to see if my doctor was on the plan. I bought the cheapest one because it was all expensive. Um, now you have situations where people are finding that the providers that they had depended upon, Representative Coleman mentioned people with cancer, but there are people with cancer who then can't see the clinic or the doctor that they were seeing previously. There are problems with formularies. You've written about these, Mr. Ornstein, yourself. Formularies that can be quite restrictive, and the fact that you may not be able to be on the medicines that you were on last year. Could we provide some help to people who have purchased in the individual market? And the answer is yes, we could. And that doesn't need to wait until 2017. I would argue it doesn't even need to wait till this fall's election. These are things that could happen right now. What if we made, what if we made deductibility from a person's income tax for the health care premium? We provide that uh, break for, for large employers. Why not imply, uh, apply it to individuals as well? And I know in my situation, I had a health savings account for years. I was told I couldn't have that anymore because it was crummy insurance. So now I've got <laughs> what I consider an even crummier bronze plan that costs me a lot more. Okay, I get things changed in, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. But when I talked to the good people at healthcare.gov last October and November and December and said, I want a plan that's HSA compatible, they didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Now, that's not a criticism of them. They were doing the work that they'd been trained to do. Why not make it easy? Why not make every bronze and silver plan sold in the individual market automatically, by law, HSA compatible? And let's go further. 
by law, I can only contribute $3,400 a year to my health savings account. My deductible is $6,000. There's just a discrepancy there. Why don't we make everyone the limit of, the limit of those deductibles to be the, the, the limit of the, of the contribution to be the limit of the deductible? That's relatively straightforward. We could do that in an afternoon in the United States Congress. We actually don't need to wait for a new president. We don't need to even wait for a new Senate. I don't think the president would be in a position to veto that if that's something that Harry Reid would let come to his desk. So there are things that can be worked on. And just to Dr. Schwartner's point, when he, when he, in his opening remarks, he talked about you know, people in the federal government getting together in a small windowless room and deciding what's best for everyone. That's been the problem. Um, we did a reform on, on, on Medicare payments to physicians. People who are on Medicare understand that it's hard to keep your doctor because of reimbursement rates. We repealed what's called the STR formula. We replaced that with some sensible policy. Was that a Republican idea or a Democratic idea? It was neither. It was all done out in the open. We opened up an email chain so anybody, any doctor or patient could send us their, their wishes or, or their observations. And as a consequence, in July of last year, passed out a committee 51 to 0, a repeal of the SGR formula. It subsequently passed both Ways and Means, the Senate Finance Committee, passed the floor of the House this past March uh, that would sunset the SGR formula. Everyone agrees this is something that needs to go. Now, it's tied up in the Senate, but again, I'd be optimistic that it could pass in what's called the extra innings of the lame, lame duck part of Congress. And, and that would be a good thing. That would allow people to not lose their physicians on Medicare. I mean, this has been a problem, really, that's been, the, been there the whole time that I've been in Congress. So I hate to interrupt. We have a couple minutes before we're going to open it to questions, and I do want to get one question more in myself. The point is, I was going to make yes. on that, though, this was a collaborative effort. This was not something that, you know, committee staff got in a room and wrote, like the Affordable Care Act. And as a consequence, I think this is a much more stable platform uh, on, uh, for us to pursue that type of reform. And I'm optimistic that it will get done. So looking ahead to the uh, upcoming biennium, uh, I think your uh, agency, Dr. Janik, has already said it will need about a billion dollars in, in a supplemental appropriation just to, for the current um, biennium. Um, we're looking at the federal sequester kicking in next year, potentially cuts to community clinics kicking in next year. Um, will the state have to invest a significant amount more in health care in the next two years, and where's that money going to come from? Well, I think the state's already investing significantly more. That, that billion-dollar shortfalls for the end of fiscal, what we estimate for the last of fiscal year 15, which won't end until August 31st of 15, and that's about $970 million is for the new Medicaid caseload, and about another uh, 10 or $12 million will be for the increase in CHIP caseload. So I think the state's already investing significant amounts more into health care, and a lot of those are the folks that are coming in that are new to the program. And where, where's the money going to come from? As far as investing, I think we need to invest smartly, though. Anything that we do needs to improve access, but also do it in a way that's, uh, again, accountable to our taxpayers. Um, you know, we need a wholesale redesign of our Medicaid system that incorporates sustainability, personal responsibility, cost sharing, defined benefit packages that are based upon the individual receiving that service. Um, and... In, in my opinion, a free market principles incorporated into a Medicaid, Medicaid redesign, not just for this expansion population that in some states are seeking, but the entire Medicaid program. So is your committee going to undertake that this coming? Cycle? We will look at everything that will improve health outcome in the state of Texas um, in a way that is right, again, for, for the individual, accountable to families, and affordable for our taxpayers long term. Um, it's... You know, this, I'm, a, I'm a physician. Um, I'm married to a physician. I have three small children. Um, you know, we need to do this for Texas and for for America. But at the same time, we cannot we cannot, as a country, continue to pr overpromise and underdeliver in in uh, on, on large scale transfer type programs and time of programs. We, I think, the better route forward in healthcare would be to allow the states to make these decisions. Uh, Chairman Coleman mentioned, I think it's the 13, 1332, 1332 way, whatever yes, the number is. Senator Wyden's proposal. Right. We can't even, you can't even apply for that until 2017. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we need that flexibility from the federal government. And without that flexibility, we'll continue to be in this box put upon us by the passage 
of Obamacare in 2010. I'm going to give you guys both an opportunity to address this, but if you have questions, if you could please go to the microphones, and then I'm going to let them uh, answer this question quickly, and then we're going to turn well, to you Well, first guys. of all, we've been shorting the Medicaid budget since the, the 90s. Since, uh, and in other words, there may be an increase in costs, but we didn't appropriate enough money for the existing uh, projections of the, the Medicaid population for this biennium. That has been commonplace. So what it does is it makes it look like the Medicaid budget is growing and growing and growing, but the reality is we never, the state of Texas never appropriated the, the correct dollar amount for the need. Now, why do we do that? Because we can do a supplemental bill, and that's why we do it. Uh, and that allows other things to be funded, and then we plug the hole. So, so this is sort of a misnomer that the Medicaid budget is growing that much when it really is that we knew how much it would grow, we just never appropriated the correct amount of money. Uh, okay, so I'm going to give Representative Davis sure. the last word, and then we're going to go to the audience. Well, I, I mean, I think that, that you cannot deny that that's true, that we are not fully funding Medicaid growth every budget session. That, that's what happened in my first session in 2011. We got back in 2013, we had a $5 billion uh, Medicaid budget. So that had to be used, we had to pay that bill immediately with a supplemental bill. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to say that we're not seeing a growth in the Medicaid roles, because we certainly are. Um, and we are certainly seeing the cost of health care grow up. And I think that those, the, the cost drivers behind health care are, are on, they are on the path to basically outpace what we spend on public education happening in many states. Yeah. All right, so to the questioners, um, if you could direct your question at a specific person and keep the questions short. All points. Uh, thanks. My name is Chris Lesour. I'm from Thank the you. LBJ School That's here at see. UT. Uh, the question is for Commissioner Janik. Um, you, you've been talking a lot, and the entire panel has been talking about uh, using caution in the uh, rollout of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I'm curious about uh, whether you are... Uh, in some ways setting it up for failure, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the regulations that HHSC has put on navigators in Texas. Uh, the requirements uh, include training that is twice as long as the federal regulations. Um, I'm blanking here. Um, there's, there's a liability insurance. There was a licensing fee, which I believe was cut out from the final rule, but uh, what, what are the purposes of these regulations, and do you think that it's going to have an effect on how Obamacare is rolled out here? So the question has to do with regulations on um, navigators, and it's to Dr. Janik. Um, I, I want to make sure we're talking about, you're talking about the, the regulations on the navigators that comes from the Department of Insurance? Yes, that's correct. Um, I can direct you to the Department of Insurance. No. <laughs> Not his agency. Does anybody want to answer? Le well, right. Somebody ha else. Happy to talk with anybody at the LBJ School if that's what they're saying. I'm more than more than delighted to talk. I, I misspoke on that, but I would also I would still like yeah. to know but, what uh, the but state but of Texas is do doing. Do let me say this: so, so much of the difficulty in its implementation was um, more of an engineering feat than anything else in terms of the marketplace being able to talk to. Uh, electronically speak to uh, our eligibility system and vice versa. So those folks that go into healthcare.gov would get sent electronically to us and we could continue to uh, work through their eligibility process without a navigator. So. But I, I do think that the state of Texas has put in place rules with respect to navigators and the training that they need, et cetera. Um, Representative Coleman, did you want to address well, that? Well, they became a barrier to uh, having navigators. And, and so because of that, that means people didn't, weren't able to get help with the website in terms of going through how to fill the application out. And, uh, you know, just like assets test that, that was brought up a little bit earlier by uh, Dr. Janik, well, the, yes, the, the Affordable Care Act says 12 months of eligibility, but yet on our application it still says assets tests that have been actually removed from, from eligibility. So these are foot-dragging barriers that are put in place that make it more difficult for people to access uh, the exchanges or the marketplaces. And I don't want to okay. make you run over, but this is an important point. We at the agency have gone from, if you look back, um, let's just say January of, of 2012, um, 
relatively low double digits of our applicants came in through an online presence, a portal, and so forth. We're well past 60% now. I don't think we're making it difficult. I think we're making it easier for folks to do that. And we don't just do it through our portal with our state workers in our state office. We actually do a bunch of these things with the United Way and the food banks and others so that we've got those outreach efforts that are out there in the community rather than make somebody come to a state office and stand in line on their lunch hour. We make it accessible a lot more. So we're way past half of the new applications for these services come in. It's not just for uh, Medicaid or CHIP, it's also for TANF and WIC and SNAP, and food stamp, you know. So there's a lot more opportunity for folks to do that. We're not dragging our feet, we're making it easier for folks to do it without having to meet face-to-face -face with a state worker than very ever quick, before. Very, Charles, on. the biggest obstacle to success was launching the website before it was built, and everybody in CMS knew that was the case. So this should not have been a surprise to anyone in the agency. Okay, next question. Hi. Um, Dr. Valerie Hawthorne. I'm a cancer biologist through MD Anderson. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I truly appreciate what you do, uh, Ms. Davis, and what you do, Mr. Coleman, and with Dr. Zuras as well. You're just common sense in a lot of what's been going on in the healthcare, especially in Houston, so I appreciate that. My question is uh, to um, Dr. Schwartner. So as much as a lot of people do or don't like the Affordable Care Act, the point is, is that it is law right now. So how can we make the Affordable Care Act work for Texas? Why are we rejecting the money from Medicaid expansion? How can we make it work? Because it is law, and we can't do anything about that. All right, so the question to Dr. Shortner is, uh, the Affordable Care Act is the law of the state of Texas, and what can we do to make it work? Well, the exchanges, uh, again, are, are under federal purview in the case of Texas. And I wish I could have made those exchanges work better, but unfortunately they failed. And, and people were highly frustrated across this entire state or across this entire nation. But in reference to Medicaid and Obamacare Medicaid expansion, it is not the right path for Texas in the current form. It does not incentivize the individual to take personal responsibility and seek that, that personal health home that uh, Chairman Coleman mentioned. In fact, it does the exact opposite by allowing that individual to, again, have a no-limit health care credit card that they use at whatever facility they want, they will look to that, the place so, they That's consider. so offensive. You say that every time you speak. That is so offensive. It is not a no-limit credit card. So these, is, these are, good, these are okay. people that are All seeking right. care. Hang on. So I'm, I'm he, sorry he to interrupt. Gave you I just, please your question, but get a different phrase because it's so offensive. Uh, it is, uh, unfortunately, I, the truth that I, there are no regulations on as put right. forward Dr. by Schroeder, Obamacare but in reference to restrictions and how, moving forward, that individual will have care. We need to increase access to care for individuals in our state, but we need to do it in a way that is appropriate for that individual, sustainable, long-term, and affordable for our taxpayers. Let me follow and up in a different way, which is... we have to change it by the flexibility that we were seeking from the federal government. Representative Coleman, Representative Zerwas last uh, term proposed to come up with a Texas plan. It didn't make it out of the uh, House. But why, if given the, the priorities you mentioned, why isn't, why isn't sort of your committee um, putting together that Texas plan and then proposing it to the feds and saying, this is what we want to do? We need a, a um, in my opinion, a, a complete block grant answer to our Medicaid problems in our state. Um, it is something that we not just need to address from an Obamacare Medicaid expansion population, but we need to do it across the Medicaid system. Um, Medicaid is now 30% of our state budget, all funds, out of $197 billion that is spent. And it is uh, pushing out education and criminal justice, transportation, water infrastructure. We need, again, the options presented by complete flexibility at the state level, taking care of our own citizens, um, that that will make it affordable and sustainable and appropriate for the citizens of the state. Okay, next question. Okay, so there have been a lot of comments about uh, Texas needing more flexibility and control over the implementation of the ACA. So this is a question for the commissioner. Why then wouldn't the state create its own exchange so that it would have control? And uh, do you see HHS uh, setting up a state exchange in the near future? So the question to Dr. Janik is, if the state wants flexibility, why isn't it creating its own exchange so that it has that flexibility? Yeah, um, 
Terrific question for the wrong person. You asked the Commissioner of Health and Human Services, and we don't create exchanges. That is for the policymakers, for the lawmakers, to decide which direction to go on that. And I'm sorry to punt. I mean, I'm happy to answer. All right, Representative Davis, why don't we have, give you an opportunity? <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot. Well, I, Actually, I, Charles, I would, can, I, can, can I address that? Well, hang the on. Reason, this is the a question reason, for, one second. This is a question for Texas lawmakers. We'll come back to you. Well, I'll just give you a very quick and quick answer because the governor did not want a, an exchange to be created and that was made clear so we're this, as a legislature if we know a bill that we're working on is going to be vetoed it becomes not worth all of the efforts and the time and the resources it takes to uh to work on a project okay, so that's but, but in fact no governor really could make an informed decision because the essential health benefits rule that was supposed to come out in july or august of 2012 was delayed until November 8th, after Election Day. I mean, again, if I was cynical, I could think of a reason why they would do that. The deadline for applying for an exchange was November 18th. Who in their right mind could make a decision on a state as large as Texas when you didn't know what you were going to be obligated to cover in seven to ten days' time? So they gave them an extension till December. Great Thanksgiving and Christmas. Everybody's gone. Nobody can figure it out. Finally, in January, they had to say, okay, time's up. And as a consequence, 32 states did not set up a state exchange because they simply did not have the information in a timely fashion to be able to make a decision. Whether it was right or wrong, they didn't know what the dollars and cents added up to. Okay, next question. Yeah, hi, my name is David Wiley, uh, and I'm on a, I'm glad you brought up uh, federally qualified health centers. I'm on the board of directors for a federally qualified health center. And yes, it is a place to get uh, service other than a hospital emergency department, but who do you think eats that cost? We have a $28 million budget. We have approximately $2.5 million we could have been reimbursed in Medicaid expansion that we just ate. So just for, the, for the state to push this off on hospital districts and FQHCs is an abdication of your responsibility in the legislature. So I have a question. New York Times ran an article about a month ago where Arkansas has a form of Medicaid expansion. So depending on which side of the street you lived on in Texarkana, whether or not you got health insurance, people were moving from one side of the street to the other. I have a hard time believing as a native Texan that Arkansas is more progressive than the state of Texas <laughs> on anything. So what is it that Arkansas did? What words, what language? Because this is clearly a political decision by the governor to help his political aspirations become president. What words do we have to use in the next session to get the flexibility to, to expand Medicaid so we're not getting killed out there as an FQHC? Okay, so the question is, the question is, other GOP states have indeed found ways within their principles to expand Medicaid. Why can't Texas? Yeah. A couple of things on the, the points that we made, uh, that the gentleman made. The first point is that when you say it's irresponsible of the state not to expand Medicaid, I would argue this, um, at least with FQHCs, with hospital districts and the other safety net plans we have, it's pay as you go. What I believe as a parent, what I believe is irresponsible is that my kids and their kids and probably their kids are not only going to pay for the health care delivered to their generation, they're going to pay for the health care delivered to our generation. And for you and me to sit here and say, boy, wouldn't that be just sweet if we just you know, took care of all these people when there is no money, I'll let my kids pay for it. That is the height of irresponsibility. And there is no disputing this. There is no money. I hear people say, I hear people say, gosh, if we don't spend it, it'll go to another state. Knowledgeable people, knowledgeable people who are supposed to know better, and they say, if we don't spend this Medicaid money, California is going to spend it for us. That is patently untrue. Federal government spends more than it takes in. They borrow to make up that difference. Anything else you spend is borrowed. You can say borrowed from China. You can say borrowed from Great Britain. You can say borrowed from Bank of America, whatever you want. It's borrowed from my kids and your kids and your kids' grandkids until the federal government gets its budget balanced. And I think you'd see more states willing to participate in these kinds of things if the federal government, as soon as the federal government had a balanced budget. All right, quick that is to, irresponsibility all right, quick to push it on my kids. Coleman, do you see any chance that Texas would uh, do anything to expand Medicaid in the next uh, Not with this rhetoric. I mean, you know, the reality is... <laughs> it's the truth. Wait, wait. Give me my opinion. No, that's not the facts. I've heard a lot of things that are a stretch of the facts. But the reality of it is the rhetoric is such that now you see why we can't get anywhere. Yeah. Because now we're blaming, we're saying we're in hostage to the Chinese when... <laughs> 
quite frankly, the reason Medicaid may not work in Texas for the existing population is because we don't fund the, the doctors an appropriate amount for them to actually take Medicaid patients. And that's why I go back to we need to work together to find a solution. It's not, the problem here is not trying to find a solution where the thing that happened in other states is they said, we want to solve a problem. We're just trying to figure out a way not to solve a problem. Uh, and the last thing I, it, that goes along with that is the idea that we're not going to do any type of Medicaid expansion unless we get a block grant is, is clearly ludicrous. Okay, next question. Uh, my name is Jordan Brown. I'm a graduate student at Texas State. Uh, my question is for Dr. Schwartner. In your uh, op-ed for the Hutto News, you said, called Obamacare catastrophic. I assume it has to do with uh, a recent study that came out that said there were about one million less uninsured or less insured, that they, we lost a million people to, for our insurance coverage. Um, I was wondering why that is catastrophic, but expanding Medicaid to cover a million people um, is something that's not worth it. So the question, uh, I think it was, was it Dr. Schwartner or Dr. Yes. Okay, Dr. Schwartner. It has to do with um, whether people losing insurance through the, uh, that have insurance, it's catastrophic because of Obamacare, but why it's not catastrophic that people can't get Medicaid under, um, it, through an expansion. Yeah, uh, the, you know, Obamacare had a lot, of, a lot of unintended consequences, and obviously one of them was the loss of employer-based coverage, either the employer's not deciding not to uh, cover or uh, less uh, covering only those with, that worked a certain number of hours, and also the individual market upheaval of 5.7 million people potentially losing coverage across this, this nation. Um, but as far as Medicaid expansion in the state, again, it would only diminish the number of insured from about 22% to 18%. Why is that not catastrophic? The, the issues associated with expansion of Medicaid is that it puts, again, a, a significant stretch on the already tenuous social safety health care network for those that are already on it, the pregnant women, children. Paid for by I know, but we're not, this is not a debate, so let them answer your question. And, okay. And then also the costs associated with it, associated whether or not we're entering into a deal with our federal partners that they will not fulfill long term. And then the effects of those that are, um, that, that the expansion population, the costs go up, they access emergency room care more often, but yet according to the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, they don't have uh, improvement of their health parameters such as cholesterol, diabetes and hypertension as measured after two years. So, so that, that's a, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a, oh, about a year ago. So you know, we're having increasing costs. We're having um, expansion to a population that are able-bodied and otherwise productive adults. And, we haven't, and we're having increased ER utilization, but we're not actually seeing improvement in health care parameters. It goes back to the need to redesign Medicaid in a way that is, that is smart, um, that is sustainable, that is affordable, and that is appropriate for the individual receiving care, whether or not they're a pregnant woman or a child or, in the case of the expansion population, an able-bodied and otherwise All right, productive thank you. adult. Uh, we've already gone over. I'm going to let one more question, and then we will wrap it up. So. Can I say the problem with that? The problem with that is the first three years were 100 percent funded by the federal government, and the tax consequence of actually that funding would have paid for uh, any cost to expand, and we know it goes to 90. Now, most states that have done a, a, a plan for Medicaid expansion have provisions in their bills that if somehow this changes, they can end that experiment. Okay. There's no way to, once a program is put forth, there's no way to take it back. Well, you know, I feel that way about a lot of things that, that I don't like. Uh, all right. Last, <laughs> last question right here. Okay. Hello. My name is Robert Martinez. I'm a physician in South Texas. I'm also a physician executive at a hospital. Um, it, it's really a question for any of the, any of the panel members that are, that are legislators, really. And I, my concern is, in the state of Texas, and, and to some extent the federal government, what's happening is, um, you know, the, like you mentioned, uh, the, the giving somebody a card uh, for services is, is not going to work. For whatever, for whatever reason, Medicaid expansion is, is seen as this kind of a solution. If you've only got 20 to 30 percent of the physicians in the state of Texas or something abysmal like that seeing Medicaid patients, all right, it's not going to solve anything. 
The other problem is hospitals and physicians are getting paid peanuts for the work that they do. You know who sets the rates? The state of Texas sets the rates. Right. All right. So, so, it, so it, I want to be clear like, about that because I think hang it's on, important. It sounds like your question is um, why is Texas paying such paltry rates to providers in the Medicaid program? That's number one. Is well, it, I think we only have time for number one. So okay. let me uh, – why, why isn't Texas setting more reasonable rates for um, health providers within Medicaid? Uh, Dr. Janik, and then if anybody else wants if to take it. If it, it. If it helps at all, uh, I am a physician and a former Medicaid provider, um, and yes, the rates are not good. I've got a certain number of dollars with which I need to cover a certain number of people. We work with our managed care organizations. All of the care now through acute care, almost all, about 15% of the Medicaid, uh, Medicaid dollars still go through fee-for-service. But uh, almost completely this is done through managed care organizations, and we're actually required to set actuarially sound rates with our managed care partners. So the actuaries come in, and they're all accredited by the Federal Actuarial Standards Board, and look at the rates that we set, and while they're not great, and they could be better, um, they are actuarially sound. That is small comfort to the providers, and I know that, and who so many, the, many times take a loss on taking care of Medicaid patients. And, and I get that. The, un, the bigger question is, what are we going to do to hold pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and I, I device think, makers? I actually think we've, we have so run out of time that this is, I'm going to be accountable. They could the help defray so, some of that. Uh, just a thought. It, uh, let's give our panelists a round of applause and wait Thank one you. second. Thank you.